And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his house. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our glory to study it, to live it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts uh, to receive it. We pray that you would be glorified as we continue to worship in our responses to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you might think that a famous preacher like Charles Spurgeon, who everybody knew brought uh, incredible encouragement to hundreds of thousands of people, that he would not need encouragement himself because he seems so strong. Every Sunday he's strong there in front of the people, but he needed encouragement. I think most of us need it from time to time. And I want to begin by reading uh, a statement that he wrote down uh, one day when he was really, really in the dumps. He said, Discouragement creeps over my heart and makes me go with heaviness to my work. It is dreadfully weakening. David experienced that, and in verse 16, it says that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Now, that phrase implies that David's hand was feeling dreadfully weakened. It needed to be strengthened. Discouragement saps the motivation out of you, and it really makes it difficult to keep on keeping on. And so the purpose of today's sermon is to cast a vision of being an encouraging uh, church of every one of us. Uh, we'll be like Jonathan and seek uh, to bring encouragement to uh, people in the congregation. Uh, the Lord will continue to prosper this church. And I say continue because uh, this is not a sermon that's designed to say, hey, you guys are lousy, uh, you're not doing encouragement. I think this is a wonderfully encouraging church. But I'm giving this to really perfect this grace, this wonderful grace of encouragement. And of course, the first thing that we see in verses 14 through 15 is that David definitely needed the encouragement. Let's read that again. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Now, there's three things in those two verses that could very easily have made David feel discouraged. The first one was isolation, because three times it mentions the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of this. That was a barren, dry, desolate area, and even the Hebrew word is a mournful word. It indicates isolation uh, for anybody who's living out in, in that wilderness. And uh, you might think, well, David, why would he feel isolated? He's got 600 men around him. But you can feel isolated even when you're in the midst of a crowd. And the, the psalms that he wrote during this period of his life uh, reflect, first of all, feeling forsaken by God, that's Psalm 22, and for, feeling forgotten by God, that's Psalm 13. And again, he does have people around him, but it's the sense of feeling let down. 
of being forsaken. And I think it was especially heightened because he was so distant from his loved ones. He missed his wife. He missed his parents. Uh, He missed the synagogue and the temple and all of the things that were important to him previously he felt isolated from. The second thing that is highlighted in these verses and in each of the Psalms that David wrote during this period is that sense of being misunderstood and mistreated. And none of us likes it when we are misunderstood, when we are mistreated. And uh, David really had this sense again that uh, in the Psalms, over and over, he mentions he just feels mistreated. He feels misunderstood. His own men loved him, but he still feels the pain of Saul treating him as an enemy. I mean, (laughs) when you see how faithful, how loyal David was, you can see that that sense of, of alienation. He's thinking of me as an enemy. He's slandering my name. He's trying to kill me. And uh, that brings up the third thing that's highlighted in these verses, the danger that David was experiencing. Now, most people can face danger, you know, for a short period of time. But when danger is dogging your steps day after day after day, after a while, it becomes wearing. And when you read through the Psalms again that he wrote right during this period of time, it's almost like you get a feel that David is exhausted Uh, from the constant danger and the constant running. So that's David's need. Now, the need of your spouse or your child or some other person in this congregation might be quite different from David's needs. Uh, It may be that they simply have impossible financial difficulties that they're facing, or maybe they're feeling like they're on this squirrel cage. It's called a squirrel cage, isn't it, that you keep running, or hamster cage. You're going like crazy and not going anywhere. I mean, sometimes mothers feel this way, you know, they're cleaning up all day long, and at the end of the day, it seems like, well, it still needs to be cleaned. You know, they're changing diapers, and they're cooking food, and they're washing the clothes, and they're breaking up fights between the kids, and and uh, it's endless work, and then the, the father has the audacity at the end of the day to come home and say, what have you been doing all day? And she's ready to break down and cry because she's been working all day and it seems like there's no end to what needs to still be done. So what I would encourage you is not to be thinking of the discouragements of other people in light of what makes you discouraged. If you will keep open eyes to what the potential discouragements that are going on in this congregation are, you're going to be much more likely to be used by God to be an encourager like Jonathan. Now, let's take a look at the process of encouragement or what's worded in this passage as a strengthening of the hand of David. First of all, we see that encouragement requires conscious planning and effort. Look at verse 16. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Now, this took some planning and some effort, and the reason I say that is because in verse 14, his father Saul has been seeking after David every single day, and despite his resources, he's not been able to find David. So how come Jonathan is able to find David? I think he's had to do his own research and his planning as well, and then beyond that research and that planning, he has to arise and he has to go. I'm sure he was a busy guy, but he took the time to go to David to find him. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if every single week, every one of us searches out somebody who needs encouragement and tries to be a a Jonathan to a David, bringing encouragement to him or to her. It's really a mark of Christian maturity that our planning includes ministry to the saints. Now, actually, this church, I think, does wonderfully well at that, and God is going to bless you guys who are doing this. It's impossible to outgive God. 
And uh, just think of it as giving. We budget our finances, don't we, in terms of tithing and extra giving beyond that. Well, think of that in terms of your, uh, your schedule as well. We're tithing our time in terms of Sabbath. But then beyond that tithing, we give. There's a, there's a charity, and you could think of this encouragement as a kind of charity. Uh, here is what Paul uh, said concerning uh, this uh, charity. First Thessalonians 5.14, he says, Bring encouragement to the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. He's telling us, make sure you plan on this. Put it into your schedule. The second thing that we see is that encouragement is strongest when it is God-centered. Verse 16 does not say that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in himself. It says that he strengthened his hand in God. So this is not about self-confidence. It's not about a support group or a therapy group or a self-help group, you know, where everybody stands up. Hello, my name is Nikki, and I'm an alcoholic, will always be an alcoholic. No, that's not biblical encouragement, uh, not at all. This is taking a person who is down and out and discouraged, and he's pointing into Christ, to his grace, to his resources, and to his victory. Nothing short of that is going to be the kind of biblical encouragement that Jonathan gave. There are a lot of counterfeits out there, but this is the kind of encouragement we're talking about. Now, of course, there is a paradox in this verse, because this verse indicates we need each other, right? I mean, even Adam, before the fall, needed another human. It wasn't enough to have uh, God in his life. It is not good that man should be alone. But certainly after the fall, we need each other. Now, why would we need each other if this is a Godward focus? It's because God has chosen to use us as vehicles of his grace in the lives of other people. And there's any number of scriptures you can see this in. Ephesians 4, verse 29, I think it's verse 29, uh, talks about our speech being seasoned with salt so that it might impart grace to the hearers. So he's saying there, the words coming out of our mouth are vehicles of God's grace working in the lives of other people. So God has appointed each one of us in the body to be vehicles of his grace to help each other endure to the end. But we need to do it in a way where they're depending on God, they're not depending on us. So if encouragement is to be long-lasting, it's got to move people into faith, into hope in God. Otherwise, it's a humanistic counterfeit. The third thing that encouragement does is that it gives a person perspective. Now, what happens is when you get discouraged, it's almost like the blinders. The deeper the discouragement, the more the blinders come in and in and in until finally you're, the only thing you can see is your problem in front of you. Uh, you have a real hard time seeing the full picture of what God is doing in your life. And part of the purpose of encouragement is to give perspective. In the early 1900s, there was a young musician who was so discouraged, he was ready to give up his musical career because of the way the, the reviewers had been criticizing his music. And uh, the, the famous Finnish composer Jean Sibelius told him not to give up. Uh, he patted the young man on the shoulder and he said, Remember, son... There is no city in the world where they have a statue to a critic. <laughs> it, that was giving him perspective, you know. Here he was with his blinders. He was so focused in on these critics and what they were thinking about him that he was almost treating them as God. And I think a lot of what's going on in verse 17 is, is Jonathan giving David some perspective. The fourth thing that I see in this passage is that encouragement instills courage. 
That's what the word encouragement means, right? It instills courage in those who are fearful. Verse 17, and he said to him, do not fear. Now, this distinguishes encouragement from flattery, obviously, on the one side, but it even distinguishes encouragement from genuine God-given praise for, you know, a job well done. Praise is a wonderful part of the Christian life, but encouragement is much deeper uh, than that. It involves giving courage to those who are ready to give up, whose hands are dragging on the ground. David's hands needed to be strengthened because he was feeling overwhelmed. And so this is why Paul says, I urge you, brethren, encourage the faint-hearted, Praise is obviously very welcome in this church. It's a part of uh, Christianity, but this goes way deeper. It's lifting up a dragging spirit. And when you give encouragement, you are serving Christ through that grace. Now, the fifth thing that I see is that Jonathan founded his encouragement on the promises of God. Why was it that Jonathan could say with absolute confidence, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Is that just a rash promise? Is that an empty promise? I mean, people do these kind of empty promises all the time. Uh, you know, in the movie Patriot, uh, Benjamin Martin, you know, he tells his girl, he promises her, I promise I'm going to come back. That's an empty promise, especially the battle he was going to is more likely he won't come back than that he will come back. But that's not what's going on in verse 17. Jonathan knows that David will be king. Why? Because God promised that David would be king. Um, now, it's true, he made a wrong assumption that he's going to survive as well, and uh, if he does so, that he'll be uh, the second in command with David, but he knew it was guaranteed that David cannot die. And two of the Psalms David wrote during this period reflect his confidence in the midst of discouragement. So here's the, here's the point. The only base, basis for David's courage was faith, and the only basis for his faith was the revelation of God. And so what, what Jonathan is doing is he's taking the discouraged, flagging faith of David back to the promises of a God who cannot lie. Now, we need to do the same with each other. God has not promised you're going to live for another seven years. He's not promised you're going to be a king. So there's a lot of promises that are unique to individuals. But, you know, he's given hundreds of promises to you that you can bank on just as surely as Jonathan was able to bank on the promise that was given concerning David. Let me give you an example. Paul said in Philippians 4.19 to all of the saints, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's one of hundreds of promises you can bank on. When you're in trouble, don't let your faith lag. Hang on to that promise. Hang on to other promises that God has given. The sixth thing that I see about Jonathan's phenomenal encouragement is that it looked more to the interests of David than it did to his own interests. Here he is. He's the crown prince. He's the next guy that's supposed to be on the throne under, under Jonathan. And look what he says in verse 17. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. That's an amazing statement. It really is. Jonathan loved David so much that it didn't bother Jonathan that David was going to achieve a higher position than he would ever achieve. That takes grace. 
To be able to encourage your children even when they have excelled way beyond where you have gotten. To be able to encourage your husband and he gets maybe more praise than you get. To be able to pray for the advancement in a job, for example, of of one of your friends when you haven't gotten an advancement for three years. This is the kind of thing that Jonathan is doing here in USA Today. Uh, they told a story of Ricky Henderson and Lou Brock at the record-setting uh, baseball uh, game in the Oakland Stadium. That was back in May 21, 1991. Anyway, Lou Brock had held the record for the highest number of stolen bases in baseball history. It was a phenomenal 938 stolen bases. Now, he was already retired at this point, but when he heard that Ricky was about to make history by surpassing his record, he went to the ball game to cheer him on. Isn't that interesting? He went to the baseball stadium to cheer him on. He was cheering for a guy who was going to surpass him. Now, the media questioned him about this. They thought this was pretty odd. He said, no, I'll be there. Do you think I'm going to miss it now? Ricky did in 12 years what took me 19. He's amazing. And he continued to sing Ricky's praises despite Ricky eventually besting him 1,406 stolen bases to his 938. To me, that is a sign of success. When you can rejoice in the successes of others, even when their successes overshadow yours. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. What does the Holy Spirit do when he wrote the Scriptures? He's constantly pointing to Christ. There's such a Christocentric focus in the Scriptures. Always pointing to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He's always pointing to the Father, glorifying the Father, doing the Father's will. And what does the Father do on His part? He's always saying, here is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And so every member of the Trinity is looking out for the interests of the other members rather than for His own interests. This is one of the reasons why Romans 15 verse 5 calls God the God of encouragement. It's a part of His nature. He overflows with encouragement. And here's the point. When God puts the impress of His character upon you, He causes you to do exactly the same thing. This is why Paul said, let this mind be in you. And the mind he's talking about is the mind of Christ, His humility. Let this mind be in you. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are the best encouragers when those that we care for can see. We care more about them than we do for ourselves. Now, that's not natural to the human flesh. That can only flow from the character of God, His grace working in us and through us. And if our church continues to have the atmosphere of Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, we will continue to thrive. We will. It is guaranteed. We will thrive. The seventh thing that I love about Jonathan's encouragement is that Jonathan really believed in David. He had believed in David when he was a young teenager. He believed in David even when everybody else stopped believing in David. And the presence of that attitude was hugely, hugely encouraging uh, to David. It's no wonder that the Psalms that he writes during, uh, right after this period have this renewed sense of confidence of what God is going to do through him. And and I should point out again, this is not a humanistic pumping up of David. This is a realistic appraisal of what God's grace is going to do through him. Uh, When I I was in my early years in elementary school, I had a teacher uh, who 
I'm convinced, really thought that I was stupid, and I lived up to her expectations. <laughs> I uh, thought, why study? You know, if I'm stupid, there's no point. I'm going to focus on things that I'm good at, and I did. I uh, played uh, very, very well, <laughs> which meant I didn't bring my homework back to the classes, which meant that I got spankings every single day. Leather strap, thick leather strap, ten wax on each side of each hand. And it seemed that this teacher, the only way of motivating me that she knew of was uh, this negative motivation. Now, I may be remembering this wrong. You know, kids' memories can be a faulty, but I went to a reunion. First thing they said, oh, yeah, Phil Kaiser. He's the guy that got the most spankings in Bingham Academy. And my parents just can't believe it. You're my good little child, you know. <laughs> they can't believe all... But I got lots of spankings in school. But for a couple of months, I got a substitute teacher who saw potential in me and invested in me. She had a huge, huge impact. Two months of my life I had her. She had a huge impact upon me. During a time when I was in boarding school away from my parents, I was getting spankings, you know, one to three times a day. Uh, I was not in the in crowd because I was a geek. I was uh, kind of out of the, the in crowd. And the older bullies would be beating up on me. She took me aside. And she had a confidence in what God's grace could accomplish. Could ac that was her verse. God can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And my hand was strengthened in God. I, I remember suddenly working my tail off because of her encouragement. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, I guess I can do pretty good academically after all. But she had a profound impact uh, upon my life. Uh, it was her belief in me that made the difference. And brothers and sisters, if the only encouragement that you know is the encouragement of the rod, now we do have to use the rod with our children, right? But if that's the only encouragement that you have, you're missing out on one of the most powerful aspects of encouragement that God's Word presents to us. Paul expressed this kind of confidence of what God could do through the churches over and over again. I'm just going to read you one example. He told the Roman Christians, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. He was confident in them. He believed in them and what God's grace could do through them. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, this church, almost every family in this church has significant ministry either inside the church or outside the church. It's because our whole philosophy of family integrated means we believe in you. We're not saying, no, 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 you guys have to be a part of our programs, a program-driven church. What we believe, it's a family-driven thing, and the very philosophy is an announcement that we believe in you. And that's what happened in the Roman church. Paul's confidence in the Roman Christians there that every one of them was, for example, competent to counsel, made Rome an every believer ministry. You look at Romans 12 and all of the greetings to the various people who are involved in ministry. That's what happens. You believe in people. They live to your expectations. And that's what we need to do uh, with each other. And I should again say, this is not a humanistic confidence in, oh yeah, you're such a good person. This is a confidence in what God can accomplish through each of us. You see the difference there? It's not humanism. It's God's work in David that enabled Jonathan to believe in him. That's what it means. Strengthened his hand in God. It's a God-centered thing. But let's have the same confidence in each other in this congregation. Let's believe in each other. 
The eighth aspect of encouragement that I see here is that the best encouragement comes from those who exemplify courage themselves. Take another look at verse 17. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. Jonathan did not keep it a secret that he was loyal to David and that he believed David should be the next king. In fact, uh, from previous chapters, you'll remember that his father Saul was so angry with him over that. One time he even tried to kill Jonathan because of his loyalty to Saul. So this really does speak of the courage that Jonathan had. Uh, courage is contagious. But if you don't have courage, if your knees are shocking, it's very hard for you to instill courage in others. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why toward the end of his life, uh, Saul's armies began to lack courage. If you look at the various battles, you see they kind of melted away, you know, when the armies, uh, the, the odds were too great. It's because Saul himself was beginning to be characterized by fear rather than by faith. Now, on the other side of the question, you can look through history and you'll see all kinds of people down through history who were leaders like, like uh, Wallace and uh, Robert the Bruce, who were able to instill courage in weak, wavering, fearful men because of the incredible courage they themselves showed. And these guys were willing to get into the battle, you know, let their lives be lost for the sake of liberty because this courage was almost contagious. Now, you can see examples of that in the Bible as well. Obviously, Jonathan was an example of that. David was an example. I want to pick just one character, and that's Barnabas, because a lot of people don't think of the courage in Barnabas. He had a lot of courage. By the way, his name, his nickname was Son of Encouragement. Why was he a son of encouragement? Part of it was because he had such courage. It took courage for Barnabas to sell that big plot of land and lay it at the apostles' feet in Acts chapter 4. You know, a lot of people say, eh, I don't know, I better save that for a rainy day because of fear of the future. But when God called him to do it, with courage, he sold it, he gave it. It took courage for Barnabas to stick up for Paul. Well, at that time, his name was Saul. Stick up for Saul when everybody else was pushing Saul away. They were scared to death of Saul. It took courage for Barnabas to stand up to Paul and stick up for John Mark when Paul wanted him off the team. And so there's this, this whole aspect of courage being contagious, which brings us to the next point that encouragement's got to be mutual. The Barnabases of this world have got to be encouraged, right? And uh, the Jonathans of this world need to be encouraged. Even the biggest encouragers, like I mentioned, I started with this uh, at the beginning, uh, Charles Spurgeon, incredible encourager. But even people like them need encouragement. It would be hard for Jonathan to go back uh, to his calling within the system, and it would be hard for David to continue in his calling outside of the system. So they made a covenant with each other in verse 18 says, so they made a covenant before the Lord. And that's what church is about. We're covenanting with each other, not just to be faithfully attending church. That's not what the co We're covenanting with each other to enter into relationship with each other. In fact, if you review your membership vows that you took, the little booklet uh, or the, did you keep the one page? I think you turned in the one page and you got the whole book. There's a footnote to what you're covenanting to when you say, we believe in one anothering ministry. 39 scriptures in that footnote. You look at those 39 scriptures, the majority of them are dealing with this whole subject of encouragement. 
So what we have entered into when we have become members of this church is we are covenanting to be in relationship with each other, to be a people encouraging one another. Now this brings up the contrast of point J. Even when providentially hindered from regular one anothering, a one-time encouragement can still be powerful. Verse 18 ends, And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. They never saw each other again because Jonathan died uh, in battle. Uh, but it's evident from David's eulogy of Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that this encouragement of each other had been profound. It was profound. When my parents were on the mission field, they didn't get lots of encouragement. But I remember one time them being hugely encouraged by a care package that came from one church and encouraged by a letter from another church. And there weren't very many rays of light that my parents had back then, but those things were a huge, huge encouragement. So one of the things God may put on your heart is to send a care package, you know, to some missionary that you think, you know, they probably are lonely. They could do with some encouragement or perhaps a note to them. Let me tell you the story of a guy who Really, it saved, his, it saved his career, greatly strengthened, just through a note. He'd been fired from a lucrative uh, job because of, a, it was a mild indiscretion, but he was thoroughly repentant of it. And yet, because of that indiscretion, he could not get employed uh, in that line of work. So he had to take on a job as a hod carrier just to put food on the table. You've got a picture of what a hod carrier looks like. It is brutal hard work, climbing up ladders and, and carrying the concrete and the bricks and the, uh, the, the wheel bearing, the, 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 the mortar and all of that kind of stuff. And um, he, during that time, uh, had a, a foreman who was very, very abusive, used intimidation to try to mo motivate the people to work harder. He'd say things like this, and obviously... It wasn't blanks, it was words in the blanks, but he said, for blank's sake, you blank, can't you do anything right? I never worked with such a bunch of blanks in my life, blankety blank, blank, blank. And he was constantly surrounded by the abuse of the foreman, by the teasing of some of the more longstanding, and the hazing of some of the more longstanding uh, workers who really gave it uh, to him. In fact, he had done some mistakes in the first day, and they just wouldn't let up on it. They were just constantly behind his back, uh, you know, speaking of what an idiot he was, by the end of the third week, he couldn't take it anymore. He said, I'm just quitting. I'll go till the mid-morning break and I'm going to quit. And then he realized, okay, paycheck comes at noon. So he was going to stick it out till noon. Well, right before noon, the foreman came by to hand out the uh, paychecks. And as he handed the man his envelope, he made the first civil comment he had made in three weeks. He said, hey, there's a woman working in the front office who knows you, says she takes care of your kids sometimes. He said, oh, who is it? And uh, the foreman gave uh, him the name of the woman, and he realized it was a woman from church. When he opened his envelope, he found along with the check a handwritten note from the payroll clerk that said, when one, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. And he stared at the note. He said, boy, Lord, you sure have a sense of timing. 
because he's at the absolute rock bottom. And the Lord, just in the nick of time, just like with Jonathan, just in the nick of time, brings this note. And it actually it made him realize, okay, there's somebody who cares. I guess I'll pick up that wheelbarrow and I'll keep working. And he continued on with that job. You never know what a note uh, might do, the impact of a word of encouragement. But she was right. She was right. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And that's why we are covenanted together, according to our membership vows, to encourage one another. <laughs> now, the last aspect of Jonathan's encouragement that I see is that encouragement should never make people bail out of their responsibilities. Jonathan went back to his tough, tough work within the system. David went back to his tough, tough work of leading these men outside of the system. Encouraging our children does not mean doing the difficult work for them. That's sparing them from God's lessons to depend upon His grace. If they're not experiencing difficult things in life, if we're not giving them challenging assignments, they're never going to grow in their dependence upon the Lord. And so they're short-circuited. It's not encouragement. It's helping your kids to escape from their responsibilities. Encouragement is designed by God to enable people to do what they really consider to be impossible to do, and yet they can do it by God's grace. Encouragement gives them the faith to expect great things from God, to attempt great things for God. Encouragement helps people to re-shoulder the responsibilities that they're about ready to give up on, and with renewed zeal, with renewed motivation, to serve the Lord. And so we're really short-circuiting the design of encouragement if we feel bad. God's given you maybe the gift of mercy and you feel bad and you go up to the person and you, you know, you're, you're discouraged with them and you start complaining about that other person with them and you end up agreeing with them. Yeah, I think you ought to just give up when God doesn't want them to give up. That, that is not encouragement. And that's a misuse of the gift of mercy. Encouragement is not a call to bail out. It is giving every reason to continue to be faithful to God. In fact, if you just read for yourself sometime in Hebrews 10, verse 24, it talks about the ministry of encouraging one another because the days are evil. And it says that encouragement needs to be to stir up what? Love and good works. And of course, that in a sense was the end result of Jonathan's encouragement of David. 2 Samuel 1 shows that both renewed their zeal in serving the Lord. Both found themselves strengthened in their faith. Both found themselves doing really what seemed impossible through the strength of the Lord. So it spurred them on to be faithful to God. Charlton Heston had to learn how to drive a chariot with four horses when he was doing the, the movie uh, Ben-Hur. And... Uh, uh, he did pretty good at it, apparently, but at one point he was joking with the director, saying, I think I can drive the chariot all right, but I'm not at all sure that I can actually win the race. And the director responded, you just stay in the race and I'll make sure you win. <laughs> and that's the way it is with us, brothers and sisters. We are encouraging one another to stay in the race and watch the miracle of God making us poor, miserable sinners win. That's God's role. He's the director who causes us to win. So we're watching God's power made perfect in our weakness. Like I said earlier, Jonathan had to stay in the difficult race 
of working within the system. That was God's call upon his life. David had to stay outside the, the system, but he was staying in the race that God had called him to run. And 2 Samuel 1 makes it clear both of them were winners. They were both winners for many, many reasons, obviously, because God's power working through them. But I think a little part of that reason was they both engaged in this mutual work of encouragement. Let me end with a story told by John Trent, president of Today's Family in his newsletter, Men in Action. Uh, It's a story about a a black uh, girl in the uh, early 1900s, I think it was the 1950s, and I didn't check it out on Snopes, uh, but uh, John Trent's a pretty reliable guy, so it's his fault if he, (laughs) if this isn't true. But apparently this uh, black girl, name of Mary, had a cleft palate. I don't know if you've ever seen a cleft palate. It's where all the way up in the roof of your mouth, there's a big gap. It makes it very hard to eat, and uh, it makes your lip look disfigured, your nose uh, disfigured, and she was just mercilessly uh, teased by the other kids because of the misshapen face and her garbled speech. I tell you, kids can be meaner than snakes if they're not restrained by God's grace, if they're not growing in Him. Another good reason not to send your kids to government schools. But anyway, um, one of the things with all of the teasing that she had begun to take into herself is she was uh, not only unlovable, but nobody but her family would even accept her or love her until she got into Mrs. Leonard's class. She went to a government school and uh, Mrs. Leonard just went out of her way. to lo- All of the kids liked her, but Mary came to really love her. Now, in the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give an annual hearing test. They didn't have the sophisticated equipment that we have today. What they did is they went up to the door, they would plug one ear, and the teacher would whisper into this ear, and the kid would repeat back what they said, and then they would turn around and plug the other ear and do the, uh, do the same thing. And she was totally deaf in one ear, but she didn't want any of the kids to realize she has one more thing that makes her different from everybody else. And so she pretended to block her ear, but uh, she didn't. And she was waiting to hear all of the things that were whispered before, things like um, the sky is blue or what color are your shoes. But on this day, God must have put into Mrs. Leonard's heart these words... She whispered, I wish you were my little girl. It didn't cost the teacher hardly anything to whisper that. But that was an investment that paid huge dividends in that girl's life, and she was never the same. So here's my admonition. What is it that you can say or write or give or do to somebody in this congregation that will be a similar investment in some Mary or some David. If you ask God and you keep an open eye, Lord, show me, who is it that I can be of an encouragement to in this coming week? You're going to notice all kinds of opportunities of being a Jonathan to a David or to a Mary. And as you do so, may the blessing of the Lord be poured back into your lap 100-fold. Amen. Father God, I thank you for this encouraging church that you have blessed me with, and you've blessed the elders and the deacons with. Father, what a joy it has been to be able to minister in this congregation, and I pray for your blessing to be poured out into their lives. Uh, May they not be disheartened. 
Uh, may they instead uh, take up courage from your Holy Spirit to be an encouragement into each other's lives, not thinking only of their own needs, but thinking of the needs of those who are around them. And Father, as we perfect this grace of encouragement that you have wrought in our midst, may this congregation thrive, grow in you, and uh, uh, be a blessing to the whole community around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.